Jacob, there is one more bit of housekeeping to get out of the way and to get off my conscience. The little fuzzy bally thing on the end of the microphone keeps getting stuck in my beard hair. So I don't want to go home and steal this from Grace Bible Church, so I'm going to leave it here on the podium. Okay. Now, my conscience is unburdened, and we can pray and begin looking at imputation and also part of that doctrine, the act of obedience of Christ. And it is fair to say that because we're here to preach the gospel, there'll be a lot of overlap between the sessions, and that's good because there is one gospel and one Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you hear some touch points, that's by design. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And as we have sung this morning, you are our righteousness. It's by your life. Lord, in your passion, you satisfied the wrath of God that stood against our sins. Lord, did you did not enact a one-week salvation by which you came fully grown into the city, went directly to the cross and satisfied judicial wrath against your people. No, you lived for us. The law that afflicts our consciences has been satisfied by you. The law that is afflicting some of the consciences of your people this morning who desperately need As Martin Luther said, to have the gospel beaten into their heads yet again, myself included, Lord. That the law's demands have been satisfied. Because by faith alone, through grace alone, we are no longer in Adam and condemned. We are in union with the last Adam. So Lord, would you make plain this doctrine this morning? That Christ not only died for our sins, but he lived for our righteousness. And I pray that as our minds are informed, God, may our hearts be inflamed. May our theology lead to doxology. In Jesus' name, amen. It may be a little macabre, but I find final words very, very interesting. According to my extensive internet research on a computer program developed by NASA called Google, I found these final words of famous people. Salvador Dali, the artist, his final words on his deathbed were, where's my clock? Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady, her final words before dying were, utter nonsense. Amy Winehouse The British singer, pop star, her tragic last words were, I don't want to die. Elvis, who needs no explanation, apparently his last words were, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Karl Marx, the philosopher, last words were these. Marx said that last words are for fools who have not said enough. Jack Daniel, in no small stroke of irony, last words were, one last drink, please. And Winston Churchill, the great prime minister, before passing away, uttered these words, I'm bored with it all. 
Aren't you glad that he brought me here to talk about death immediately in final words? Yet I think the most intriguing final words were uttered by the great Westminster theologian, whose name everyone butchers, but I'll try, J. Gresham Machen. After falling ill while traveling to a speaking engagement, Machen's last words, dictated shortly before his death, on January 1st, 1937, in a telegram to his friend John Murray, J. Gresham Machen said this, final words before flying into the arms of Jesus. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Would your last words before leaving this earth focus on the active obedience of Christ? Of all the things that might run through your mind as your heart is slowing down and the death rattle is filling your lungs and you know that death is imminent and the end of the road is very, very near, would the first thing and maybe the last thing on your mind be to say, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ? Probably not, but I pray by the end of this lecture that perhaps maybe when you stand at death's door, the last thing on your mind would be to say, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. I have no hope without it. But because of it, I have all the hope I need to face death. I pray that that would be the case. The first thing we're going to look at here is the perennial reformation. So if you're taking notes, I know many of us are note takers, point number one, the perennial reformation, and I will save you the embarrassment because I had to Google it to make sure I didn't misspell it. Perennial has one R, two N's. Perennial reformation. And I love perennial plants. I do not have a green thumb. I don't have a green anything. All of our plants die if left on my watch, and so I've made a practice that whenever we do landscaping, I get plants that kind of come back automatically because if it were left up to me, they would disappear into the ether and become fertilizer. So perennial means that which comes back. Many theologians have referred to Gnosticism as the perennial heresy because it has a way of creeping up in every generation. And I would argue that the Reformation, I know Pastor Jacob has taught you well on the tenets of the Reformation. I would say that we are engaged in a perennial Reformation because the doctrine of justification you come here as a Christian, you say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, and the doctrine of justification is the whole economy of your profession. And in every generation, the doctrine of justification, which was at the center of the Protestant Reformation, must be retaught and reproclaimed over and over again. So I believe that we engage in a perennial reformation. Why? Why? All the clamoring about the doctrine of justification, which was at the core of the Reformation. The doctrine of justification is at the center of what it means to say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. The doctrine of justification answers the ancient question of Bildad, of Job 25.4, when he says, how then can a man be in the right before God? If you were to ask me, give me one verse that sums up the totality of the Bible, I would take you somewhere that you would not expect. I would say, go with me to the book of Romans. 
Very tempting. But I would say go with me to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. Here's the problem. That sums up the totality of the Bible. Because when we say, I'm a Christian, what we're saying is, I am wicked, I am vile, I'm a lawbreaker. I am like Isaiah when he saw the unveiled glory of the Lord and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I know my position before God, but as a Christian, I am justified. How can a holy God declare unholy people to be holy without becoming unholy himself? That is the theological and forensic conundrum of all the Bible. And it's right there in Proverbs 17, 15. We have to proclaim this, beloved, in every generation, and we must preach this to our hearts. R.C. Sproul, a lesser-known theologian, most of you probably have never heard of him. R.C. Sproul left a wonderful legacy of teaching us about the core tenets of the Protestant Reformation. And on teaching on justification, Sproul taught that at the heart of that Reformation then and at the heart of every generation of Christians today that want to rightly understand the gospel is one word, justification. He said, at the time of the Reformation, when that word is carried over from the Latin by the Roman Catholic Church, they were teaching that we must be justificare, we must be made righteous. We must be, justificare means to be formed righteous. Rome taught that you must become inherently formed into a righteous being until you can be in the presence of God. Well, how do I become actually righteous? Through a lot of doing. And maybe a wee bit of purgatory. And then here comes this cantankerous monk with his Greek New Testament. And he says, wait, the word is not necessarily eustificare, that our salvation is, is tied up in the idea that we must become righteous through much travail. He says the word is dikaiosune. Not to become righteous, but to be declared righteous. That's a huge, huge difference. That's the difference between heaven and hell. Is my whole salvation wrapped up in the hope that I can become ontologically righteous in my being, that I can stand before God because I did enough? Or is my hope of standing before a holy God that I've been legally declared righteous? There's only one gospel, beloved. And it is the gospel of justification by being declared righteous before a holy God. Martin Luther famously said that the condition of a Christian, and we need to remind ourselves of this constantly, and it always sounds cool when you say it in Latin, simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously sinner and justified. I am not on a treadmill of a life trying to earn righteousness so that I can go to heaven. No, no, no. I stand declared righteous even though I know 
I'm a sinner. That's the gospel. And this is why we must declare it in every generation, and that's why we are engaged in a perennial reformation, because some of us went to bed last night believing that I'm declared righteous. My hope is in Christ, and Christ alone my hope is found, and we woke up this morning a rank legalist. I got to earn my righteousness through my parenting and through my finances and through my vocation and through my doing. And by God's mercy, here we are yet again to have that gospel stamped on our eyeballs. I am simultaneously sinner and justified. Amen? That's really good news. That's why we can say there is therefore now how much condemnation for those that are in Christ? None! Not even a drop left in the cup of God's wrath for you to drink. None. How can a man be in the right with God? What I mean is, how does this work? Now we've just had a little miniature overview of the Reformation and kind of the core tenets that we're not to be made righteous through our doing, but we are declared righteous by faith alone, through grace alone, amen and amen. But I'm a little black and white in my thinking, and I think, but how does that work? Because I know God is holy, and he will by no means clear the guilty. How can a holy God declare me to be righteous when I know very well that I am not? Because if God just kind of pushes our sin under a cosmic rug, he's no longer holy, he's no longer righteous, which means he's no longer God, which means the universe falls into entropy and we're done for. So there's kind of a lot riding on this. How does it work? The perennial reformation, number two, the last Adam. The last Adam. We look at the act of obedience of Christ. I often tell my kids, or I'll ask my kids as we do family worship and different things, to test them and to test my own heart, say, what did Jesus do for you? And they'll very confidently look me in the eye and they'll say, he died for my sins. And then I get this malicious joy as a dad by playing tricks on their minds, and I'll say, that's mostly right. Dad, they know you're, you're right, he, he did die for our sins, but if that's all he had to do to bring sinners to heaven, then why didn't he show up to earth as a fully grown man, enter Jerusalem, go right to the cross, to Tetelestai, empty tomb, ascend to glory, done. Why the life of Christ? Does it have any salvific meaning for us was Jesus just kind of hanging out for 30 years until he got down to the real business beloved this is really important Jesus did not just die for your sins he lived for your righteousness if God were to just take your sin away and just clean the slate, a tabula rasa, a blank slate, would you go to heaven? 
No one trusts me to answer the question. They know I'm up to something. No. My conscience does not need to be in a state of moral neutrality. I don't only need my sins taken away. I don't just need expiation. I need righteousness. I need what Martin Luther called a righteousness extra nos, an alien righteousness. I need positive righteousness. I don't need a, a zero balance in my bank account. I need to have perfection in my account. So Rome would say, yes, you must be formed into that righteousness before you go to heaven. But the Bible says that righteousness comes from God and is given by God. We need positive righteousness. Wayne Grudem says this, for this reason, Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn righteousness for us. He had to obey the law for his whole life on our behalf so that the positive merits of his perfect obedience would be counted for us. Doesn't this make you love Jesus more? We think, oh, he, he satisfied God's wrath against my sin on that cross for his people, for his elect, and it's all gone, amen. But every step of obedience that we could not give, he took. Never a lustful thought, never an ounce of deception, never breaking the law of God, ever. Can you imagine being in the presence of the God-man, in the presence of a sinless person? Is there any doubt why the demons saw him coming and what do they say? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Are you here to destroy us before the time? Women were always comfortable in the presence of Jesus. Children were always comfortable in the presence of Jesus. Not an ounce of deception or immorality in him. At his baptism, John knew. John says, you should baptize me. And what did our Lord say? Let it be, for I have come to fulfill all righteousness. Romans 5, 18 and 19. I heard one theologian say that the mark of your theology depends on how well-worn Romans 5 is in your Bible. <laughs> Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, speaking of the first Adam, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, speaking of the last Adam. Imagine, if you will, just for a moment, <laughs> I laugh because I've lived it and it's still funny, it's true, me and my family packed into our High-powered Kia minivan. We're all going down the street. We're going to go to the grocery store. And I plug my phone in, and we're trying to find the right track. And you think, oh, they're probably listening to some kids' tunes or Veggie Tales or something, right? But no. In that minivan, the speakers 
are bumping to Christian hip-hop. And here are some of the lyrics that are pouring out of those strained, very weak speakers. I'm not going to rap. I'm just going to read. I can see you. I know. I can see you like, don't. Please, Aaron, don't. I won't. I know my limitations. Think, think not too highly of yourself. Active Obedience by Shai Lin. Listen to these words. And tell me if you hear the doctrine of active obedience. So praise the living God for his amazing wisdom. We get credit for somebody else's work like plagiarism. But he does it righteously for the worst of all heathens. Based on 33 years of perfect law keeping. Believing in Jesus has crazy perks. And I guess you can say that we've been saved by works. His. Jesus, there's nothing greater God could give for us. But before he gave his life, he lived for us. It's one of salvation's massive ingredients. The Lord Jesus Christ and his active obedience. Christian hip-hop will preach. Beloved, Jesus lived for our righteousness. We've seen the perennial reformation. This core of the doctrine, justification, must be preached again and again and again. And then we ask ourselves, but how does it work? Well, that brought us to point number two, the last Adam. Our representative who lived the life we could never live. But then how does that come to us? How does his perfect life get declared and counted to us? Point number three, for all my beloved note takers, the great exchange. The perennial reformation, the last Adam, and the great exchange, the doctrine of imputation. And I said imputation, not amputation. That's a different doctrine. Where would I find this whole concept in a nutshell? Where would I find this whole idea of how sinners are declared righteous before God? If I'm ministering to a coworker or one of my kids or grandkids or just another believer, if I just want to give them all of this in one shot, that this is how unholy people go to heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, people that have worked enough and prayed enough and given enough and bled enough to be made righteous, to be formed righteous, that's not a scandal. That's not even good news. <laughs> of course inherently righteous people go to heaven. And that's why when we say for our sake, we need to hear the words of the Westminster Confession, chapter 6. Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner 
whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law and so made subject to death with all the miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. They didn't hold back. They told the real condition of man. We are rebels. I could promise, and by some act of divine fiat, not sin for the rest of my life, which ain't going to happen. But even if I did, I have almost 42 years of law-breaking behind me that I can do nothing about. This is the condition of everyone in this room. For our sake, broken, lawbreakers, conscience defilers, truth suppressors, God defamers. Did you get up and take your first breath of air provided by a sovereign God and hit your knees in praise and say, thank you that in a fallen world even grace abounds? No, we didn't. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Jesus did not become inherently sinful, lest we speak blasphemy. But there is a double imputation in the life of a believer. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He imputed the sins of his people to Christ. Make it personal. Your drunkenness, your immorality, all the garbage you did in high school, all the garbage you did in college, and all the garbage you did last week. Some of it legal garbage, some of it illegal garbage, all of it sin, all of it for the placed upon the perfect Son of God. What else was the Day of Atonement? displaying in Leviticus 16. We love the book of Leviticus, right? Can you find Jesus in Leviticus? Yes! On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, there's this big drama where the sins of the people are going to be atoned for. The great high priest, you know, they choose between these two goats. And one of them dies and sheds its blood for the sins of the people but then the other one in this act of drama, the, the great high priest and all of his garments and after all the washings and all the fanfare, he goes over to this goat and it says he lays his hands on the head of the goat and professes the sins of the people over it. And then they send it away into the wilderness. So what, what is it communicating to the people? I need someone to die for me, and I need someone to take my place, take my sin upon themselves, and take it away. If you don't see the shadow of the cross in Leviticus 16, you're not looking at it clearly. This is exactly what it means to say, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him, by faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the double imputation. Our sin placed upon the scapegoat. His perfect life, righteous, 
never sinned, never broke a command. When you kneel down or whatever, but in faith, not just mental assent saying, I like that idea, I like a little morality in my life, damnable. Demons have that theology. I know who Jesus is, I agree that he's the son of God. No, no, no. When you come and say, Lord, like David, I would give sacrifice, but it's not what you want, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise, save me. Put my faith in you. You said all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What happens? 2 Corinthians 5.21 happens. My sin placed upon the head of the Lamb of God and by faith alone declared righteous. That's what I need. I don't need just my sins taken away. I need righteousness given to me. And in that moment, We become the righteousness of God. We are clothed in the garments of Christ. That's the basis. That's the foundation of all our praying, all our doing, all our going, all our sacrifice, including martyrdom. Not to earn anything, but as one gigantic, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Kevin DeYoung says this, imputation means instead of holding $500 in your hand, someone else wires it to your account. The money's not actually in your physical possession, but it is legally and truthfully considered to be yours. This is what imputation is all about. God counting to us a perfect life of obedience richer than we've ever lived. Thus he grants us a perfect righteousness we have no chance of ever achieving on our own. So I ask you, have you, and I don't assume anything, have you placed your filthy hands, hands marred by cursing and drunkenness and all the respectable sins of gossip and slander and self-righteousness and immorality, have you taken those filthy hands and placed them I mean, imagine, I read a poem by George Herbert. Christ there offers his sacred head, oh, sacred head now wounded, offers it to you. If you place those hands on the head of God's lamb, he will take your sin away. He is able to bear it. And not only that, but he will give you his perfect life of obedience credited to you by faith alone through grace alone. This is the scandal of the gospel. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, what's the difference between your Christianity and every other world religion? Hinduism, Islam, Taoism, you name it, what's the difference? And C.S. Lewis cocked his eye and he said, well, that's easy, grace. Every other system is one of works and self-salvation on some level, but it is this gospel alone where the Savior comes, lives the life we could not live, dies the death that we deserve, and by faith alone, with empty hands, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, sinners like us can walk out of this place rejoicing week after week after week, knowing that we're sinners, but that we are justified sinners. 
Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. When Satan tempts me to despair, I saw what you did yesterday, and I know your search history. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. I know I don't deserve to go to heaven. Tell me something I don't know. My hope is not in me. My hope is in him. And he lived the life I can't. The law has been satisfied. And I am robed in him. And every step I take of imperfect obedience is not meritorious. It is my way of saying, praise be to God. Friends, what will your last words be? Perhaps after today's conference, you will find yourself uttering, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. I have no hope without it. Beloved, Jesus not only died for you, he lived for you too. And I pray that we could all sing these words. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, Never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Jesus not only died for our sin, he lived for our righteousness. Praise be to his name, amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. How else can sinners come into the presence of a holy God? Lord, if we thought that we could come to you and have hope in the face of death by being formed into righteousness, justificare, we are people to be pitied. But if we, like J. Grisham Machen and countless millions of saints of ages past, could face death knowing That the active obedience of Christ has won for us a perfect righteousness that is immovable and fully accepted in the heavens. So that we can say there is therefore now, right now, even with my failings, no condemnation because I am in Christ. No other name under heaven by which we can be saved. There is no gospel like this out there. Who would have imagined such a thing? But Lord, like Paul, we are unashamed to proclaim this gospel, for it is your power for salvation for all who believe. And I pray not a soul would leave this building resting on anything other than the finished work of Christ, who not only died for them, but lived for them. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.